if you can latch on to somebody who has a clue, who's been there, who's made the mistakes so that you don't have to, I mean, you're, you're still going to learn a ton in climbing. I mean, there's, there's so much that is within your control and learning that learning about avalanche avoidance, you know, and just uh, preparation, packing, you know, your backpack and just, you know, living in those conditions for so long, it, it really helps to, to speak and work with others that are in that field. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Race for Impact. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. On this episode, we visit with Brian Dickinson, author and motivational speaker who served for six years as U.S. Navy Air Rescue Swimmer before he moved to the Pacific Northwest to get his MBA and pursue his passion for extreme sports and mountain climbing. He has climbed in expeditions on the highest peaks of seven continents, commonly referred to as the Seven Summits, and he uses his climbs to help raise money for charities, deliver gift to orphanages. But today, we're going to talk about his climb on Mount Everest, about how he was roughly 1,000 feet from the summit of Mount Everest, also known as the Death Zone, when his Sherpa became ill and had to turn back leaving Brian with a difficult decision. Should he continue to push for the summit or head back down the mountain? After carefully weighing the options, Brian decided to continue toward the summit alone. Four hours later, Brian solo summited the highest peak in the world. But the celebration was short-lived. After taking a few pictures, Brian radioed his team to let them know he had summited safely and got ready to begin his descent. This is where everything went wrong. Suddenly, his vision became blurry. His eyes started to burn, and within seconds, he was rendered almost completely blind. All alone at 29,035 feet, low on oxygen, and stricken with snow blindness. Brian was forced to inch his way back down the mountain, relying only on his Navy survival training skills, his gut instincts, and his faith. In his book, The Blind Descent, Brian recounts in fantastic detail his extraordinary experience on Everest, demonstrating that no matter how dire our circumstances, there is no challenge too big for God. So without further ado, I'm sure you will enjoy this episode. So brace for impact. Well, hey, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thank you. Really uh, honored. To, to have you as a guest on the show. Your story is, is truly inspirational on, on many, many different levels. First and foremost, on, on the fact that, you know, you served our country as a Navy rescue swimmer for 
six years, I believe. So thank you for your service. And yeah. a good, a good friend of mine um, was also a Navy rescue s- swimmer and he passed away uh, too young, but yeah. you guys do an a- amazing work. So thank you for putting your life on the line. Yeah, you're welcome. If that weren't enough, you decide to climb Mount Everest. And I'm not sure if that was the first of the seven summits that you attempted, but uh, regardless, just, just attempting Mount Everest, let alone actually summiting it and then summiting it by yourself. When I think there's only like two or three people in the world other than yourself who've done that and then descending it blind. And we'll get into all of that. uh, Plus maybe some of your other cool stories that you can tell us about some of your other summits and, and what you're, what you're doing now. But before we get into the the core of the of your story, I always like to start off with a fun question because I think it gives a, a little bit of a fun insight into someone's thinking, which is if you could pick any superpower, what would it be and how would you use it? Yeah, that's that is a good one. Um, I asked my kids that last night and of course, you know, everyone wants to fly or breathe underwater or something. But I honestly with all my travels um, I think it would be really uh, a really cool superpower to have would be to be able to be fluent in every single language of the world. Mm. Just communicate mm-hmm. no matter where you're at. You know, there's no miscommunication. I think the world would be a, a better place for one. You know, you're always going to have cultural differences, everything else, but just to be able just to have a conversation with people in their fluent language anywhere where you're at would be, I think, super cool. I know that would be totally cool. And to take it one step further, because it it ultimately, everything in our life is all about connection. And imagine like, just if you you were able to speak every language, how much more of a connection to be able to make with with everybody. And that, you know, they they say time is money, but really relationships are are money. So thank you for sharing that. You've got a lot going on right now, but what, what are you most excited about today with with life and, and business? Um, I think for me, I, I really try to live in the moment. And and I, I try to slow down and live in that moment. But life just flies by. So it's, it's really a, a challenge at times. And just having that courage to, to be content, which is always difficult when you're really driven. Um, but for me, right now, just the point in place that uh, me and my family are at the the kids are you know nine and twelve, and we're just we're really blessed with the opportunity to to go and travel and you know tell my experience um, from my Everest experience. Um, so really just connecting with others and just seeing the impact uh, that I'm having on others based on my experience. It's really humbling. It's something that you know I, I never you know I. Went the the standard route, military, you know, got thing on my education, my MBA, and worked in the high tech. You know, I never expected to to be where I'm at, and mm-hmm. to be able to have that impact on on such a macro level. You know, with the media, and you know, I'll be filming a reenactment for my experience for my book, Blind Descent, in May for a, a marriage series that'll be coming out in the fall. So oh, that's just, cool. Yeah, it's just, it's a, you know, unpredicted type of experiences. And it's just amazing um, where life just leads you, you know, if you can just kind of try to map it out, but be flexible to 
you know, wherever it takes you. So to me, that, that gets me excited and just all the, the adventures, definitely no shortage of adventures on this earth and just sharing those with my kids. And now they're at the age just to, to really enjoy them. Yeah, I have four kids and they, they, they range in age from 10 to five. So it's, it's definitely an adventure and there mm-hmm. is not a shortage of fun activities to do. But, you know, I've noticed a constant theme in the, in the conversations I've been having with folks like yourself and at, at all kinds of different levels of achievement. And one of the common themes that I'm hearing is the ability to slow down. And I, I say ability because I think it really, it's not something that comes naturally to everybody, the ability to pause or think or slow down and pray, meditate, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, how do, is that something that you've always been able to do or something that you developed or something that was kind of that you learned? Uh, I think I'm still learning. I'm evolving over time. And if, if I'm not careful, life will just, fl- what well, is flying by. And what's interesting to me is I think um, having these worldly climbs has really helped because when I'm on Everest and I'm stuck in a tent pinned down, I realize how slow time can go, but when you're back in your normal environment, which is most people work in their Monday through Fridays, time flies because you're just, it's the same thing. It's repeatable. You're reflecting on it. And before you know it, summers are just coming and going, you know, Christmases are coming and going. So I think it's just gaining that perspective, taking vacation. I'm always in the negative in my vacation days. I just, I'm a true believer in that. And, mm-hmm. You know, when people are losing days, you know, I just, I wonder why, man, you got one shot at this life, like figure it out, like reprioritize, yeah. you know, take a step right. back. Like what is truly important to you? Is it, is it that, is it working? And maybe it is for some people, but for the mass majority that I talk to, it is not. And it's, there's a lot of regrets out there. So if, if that's the case, then guess what? Put a halt to it right now. Change it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that I think that there's a lot of. I was just talking with, to my brother-in-law about about this, and there's there's a lot of kind of momentum starting to happen in the space of trying to create these these experiences, and you know, instead of just plowing money away for you know 40 years from now, mm-hmm. you know, carving off a percentage of that and putting it to use today to create these experiences with their family and, and, and friends, et cetera. Because yeah. I mean, this is, this is the prime, prime time. I mean, you could do back practically everything. You might not be able to climb Mount Everest, Hopefully but not. you, yeah, you, <laughs> you can do most everything else. Yeah. And you never know when life's going to end. You know, one of my best friends was diagnosed with a brain tumor, uh, five years ago, you know, one of my main climbing buddies, young, just never saw that coming. So definitely mm-hmm. put a halt and he's, he's still working through that. You know, my wife's dad died at a very young age when we first met, you know, a little over 20 years ago. So like when we were talking to our financial advisor, I'm sure we want to be uh, responsible, you know, and, and we are, but it's a balance and it's not about just, you know, everything is, you know, heading towards 65 or 70 years old where we may not be able to, you know, have the experiences that we could now. So I'd rather have less than, you know, at a manageable rate but be able to do more now. Yeah, totally. You started your, your, your career in the military and concluded that how many years ago now? How many years ago did you uh, get? Man, got out in 99. Not quite, 99. Not, so, it was a while. So, 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 so a while. 
But I'm always fascinated because I think that there's, I th- uh, I'm a military brat. My dad was an army officer. And then when he left the military, he started a business. And I know a lot of other military people that, that left the military and, and, you know, stepped onto the entrepreneurial path. How did your military training kind of age you in that transition? Whether it was immediately into an entrepreneurial path or, or into working for a tech company? Yeah, it's uh, definitely played a role. I mean, you just, you learn so much in the military as far as leadership and just, you know, just managing unique environments. And then you get out and realize that uh, life's not, doesn't align necessarily. So you have to kind of make that transition. But I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to be a, a lifer in the military. You know, it was fun in my 20s and had some great experiences, saw the world, you know, from a, a certain perspective. But wanted to get out, just uh, get my education, uh, make sure I finished my MBA before I had kids. And um, I finished it, I think, a week before Emily was born. <laughs> so that worked out. And, and then from there, you know, just got into high tech and, you know, still have dabbled as far as entrepreneurial, um, having a couple different businesses and just seeing how far they'll go and, you know, sell them off. But for, uh, for the most part, I, I think it's just a, a stepping stone, you know, definitely put me in a, a different place than I would have been if I had traditionally just went to college right out of school. But you never know, right? Because you can, right. you can take a left or you take a right and you just kind of own the decisions you make and um, you are who you are, but it's, you know, you're evolving that over time based on your experiences and education. So I'd say when I got out of the military, I was, I was young and naive and I guess I'm still that, but you know, just an older version of that, but I've <laughs> learned a lot along the way and I'm just continue learning. What I find is the more I know or the older I get, the less I know. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's true of, of, of a lot of people and, one of the reasons why a lot of people are successful is because they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why you're, you initially decided to tackle these huge summits is because you didn't know exactly how daunting it, it, it might be. You knew it was a, would be a, a huge achievement. How did mentor play, mentorship play into that? You, you mentioned your, your climbing buddy, but, and he might might be a mentor. You may have had other mentors. I actually wrote an article about mentorship and equated it to a Sherpa helping guide you up to the top of Mount Everest and how having a mentor would accelerate your, your success, et cetera. But how, how important has mentorship been to you in your climbing endeavors? Uh, it's, it's definitely, I mean, just not even climbing, but everything. I mean, if you can if you can latch on to somebody who has a clue, who's been there, who's made the mistakes so that you don't have to, I mean, you're, you're still going to learn a ton in climbing. I mean, there's, there's so much that is within your control and learning that learning about avalanche avoidance, you know, and just uh, preparation packing, you know, your backpack and just, you know, living in those conditions for so long, it, it really helps to, to speak and work with others that are in that field and yeah, doing it on your own. And there's plenty of people that kind of try to wing it out there and they, they get themselves and others into trouble. So I think I've been definitely blessed from that perspective, living in the Pacific Northwest and just kind of immersing myself um, with, with groups and teams and, you know, going guided the first few times, the first time on Denali and, 
on Rainier and then taking mountaineering courses and really, you know, seeking out, you, you can always tell, you know, like even with guides, there's the junior guides, they are being mentored and you can right. still learn from their experiences, but you might want to just, you know, cut the middleman and go directly to their mentor and, and just really, really learn. And what I found is in climbing, everyone has a different perspective. You have old school, you have, you know, older gear, newer gear, newer methods, and everything's always evolving in the climbing community. And just having high altitude mountaineers versus, you know, lower level trekking mountaineers. Um, you know, you take pieces from each of them and then you kind of you develop your own methods, take the good with the bad, I guess, and you know, hopefully learn from others' mistakes. But just like anything, you gotta you got to make some bad decisions and, you know, do some silly things to be like, wow, that's, I don't ever want to do that again, or that could have yeah. really turned out bad. Yeah, totally. I, I think that you touched on something that is really important for people to recognize when they are, are working with a mentor is that, you know, nobody is going to help them be successful for them, right? Uh, whether it's in business or climbing. And so you might have a mentor uh, and they might, help coach you along the way and, and provide some guidance and stuff, but you still have to go do things on your own to, to help perfect your, your practice, you know, such as, you know, you, you have a, a climbing mentor who's high altitude, but then you go on your own and you do a mountaineer course to help you perfect your technique. I, I mean, I'm assuming that's kind of what you were talking about, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm not a climber and uh, have no real like aspirations to be a, a climber in the sense that, that you are. I mean, the biggest thing I've done is, is hike half done with my dad, which is beautiful, challenging. And, and the last 450 feet were kind of scary because you're on the cables. You're on the cables and there's just two by four and you're not clipped in and there's people going up and people going down. Mm-hmm. But what motivates you and climbers in general to climb these peaks? And, and let me add another kind of question because I just watched the um, documentary on Maru, mm-hmm. which is mind blowing. And it, it's, it's almost like, like a, a mermaid or some sort of a mythical creature that kept, kept drawing these guys or drawing you guys, I should say, back to these, these peaks. And, and when you summited Mount Everest, you stayed up there for over an hour. And, and I, I can imagine that it's, it's not really easy to put into words the feeling that you get when you summit something like that, right? Yeah, it's it's a lot to process at the moment. Just to back up, as far as my motivation and climbers in general, I think if you ask a hundred climbers, you'll get a hundred different answers. And I think for me, it's it's definitely changed throughout the years. Like I, I used to just say, I'm a big goal setter. I'm very driven. Okay, that's very vague. Um, and not a probably not a an adequate answer for something like that. It does it plays into it. You know, there's something that right. triggers. You know, why do you do things you do? And I, I think we're all made differently. We're all wired a little differently. And you know, having seven billion people on this earth, you know, the mass majority are not climber high altitude climbers. There's a lot of people that, you know, a lot of them. Most people when I do a motivational speaking, if I ask, you know, how many people have ever thought about what it would be like to be on the summit of Everest, you know, pretty much hundred percent of the people will raise their hands. The ones that aren't probably misunderstood the question, like who in here would, would actually do it. Right. I think everyone, it's the highest point in the world. So it'd be like asking what would it be like to be on the moon? 
of course, most people would love to just stand there and just experience that. And it's, it's the same. There's, there's a draw and there's, it's the beauty. It's the, the remoteness, the spirituality, the preparation is huge. And, um, just the, the overall experience, um, for me, it's just getting out, getting away from the clutter of sea level. You know, there's just so much with technology and social media and everything these days, man, just stepping outside and getting away from it all is for me, it's so cleansing to the soul. So it's very necessary. It's just a part of me. My wife mm-hmm. is hundred percent opposite. In fact, she's a, she's a Christian counselor. So, which is perfect, right? Cause I clearly need help. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she respects who I am, even though she doesn't, there's no way she would ever do that type of stuff. Although she does, you know, smaller adventures with me. Um, but yeah, just being up there um, to have soloed the summit, you know, in the Himalayan database, I haven't checked recently, but last I checked, there was only one other person that's ever, that's in there. And I certainly didn't intend to, it just kind of worked out that way. Right. But to be up there with other people, I think is one thing, at least you can hug and high five to be up there taking, you know, the highest selfies in the world and making a radio call down. It's, it's, I don't know, it's almost systematic where, you know, just going through it and just like forcing myself to take it in because it's like, keep pinching myself. This is, this is really happening right now. And I think just over, over the years, you know, this will be my five-year anniversary. Um, and I'm still processing it. You know, I have some large pictures in my house of when I was up there and I just sit there and just look at them and be like, wow, that happened. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, your question was, can words (laughs) describe it? Not really. Yeah. I I can't even, I can't even imagine. I mean, I've seen videos and, but I just can't even, I, I mean, it's you're, yeah, you're on the, the highest point on the earth. And I mean, this, and I think it was one of your pictures, one of your pictures, the shadow mm-hmm. of, of Mount Everest over the rest of those peaks was just crazy. I mean, I just can I, I just can't even imagine that your brain is capable of processing all of that stuff, especially with the fact that you literally have like, uh, you know, no oxygen, uh, available to you other than what's being pumped into your nose through the, the canister. Yeah, supplemental oxygen. Yeah, there's only a third of the air up there, and at twenty nine thousand thirty five feet, I mean, it's it's amazing because the some of the other highest mountains in the world are around you, and you're mm-hmm. so much higher than them. I mean, it, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it is. That's wild to think about. You know, uh, you, uh, a minute or so ago, you talked about you know that a lot of people would like to like the idea of of being able to stand on the moon, right? Mm-hmm. But they're not they're not willing to do the work that's necessary to get them there. Right. Um, so, so I want to start transitioning into your book and, and one of the things before we get to kind of the, the, the real crux of, of the story, I want to talk about preparation and willpower, but I love the title of your book, the blind descent. And I was thinking about it last night and it popped into my mind because I, I was, when I was preparing for this interview, I was, you know, Googling other interviews that you had done. And I think the original working title that you had was Blind Faith, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Some, something uh, along those lines. And, and then, you know, probably with working with your editors, they, they, they suggested Blind Descent. 
And obviously, when you're coming down a mountain, you're descending. So that makes sense. But I also thought about the actual, the other word the, that's a completely different word, descent, descent, or descent, you know, like, like no, mm-hmm. right? And how that might have, have kind of played into the decision to, call, to title the book Blind Descent, because not only are you literally blind as you're descending this mountain, but you are telling all of the forces around you that are telling you to quit. You're saying no to that. Yeah, right? I've never uh, thought about it from that perspective, but yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty well. You know, so let's talk about preparation and, and, and willpower. You know, one of my, a book I read a while back called The Last Lecture by a guy named Randy Pausch, uh, who passed away. Yeah, I think he, I have it right here. Oh, it's a, it's a great book. Yeah. And, and it's very much aligned to uh, what you were talking about earlier, like why wait, don't wait to take adventures with your family, for instance. But in, in, he, in the book, he shared a quote that said, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And I've also said that preparation is the bridge between expectations and reality. So like one, some, some person can have like a goal to, ha- to climb Mount Everest, and that can be their, their expectation. But unless they prepare, their reality is going to be far from actually making the summiting that mountain. So how, how did you prepare for something like that and, and any of the peaks that you've climbed and, and how does willpower come into play on a climb that like that, let alone uh, climbing it by yourself? Yeah. Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I mean, that just nails it because the more prepared I am, the luckier I get. Mm-hmm. Funny how that works, huh? Preparation for me is it, it's not like I have a climb coming up. I better start working out. To me, it's it's a lifestyle, and I every every New Year's, you know, everyone's making their resolutions, and then a few weeks later, done onto something else. It's like it's great to say them and announce them through social media and get a, a quick bump, you know, a quick high because you got a few likes. But uh, honestly, the the success is creating a lifestyle of change, and for me, it's. I, I could go climb anything anytime. That's my the reality of it, and mm-hmm. I want to be prepared no matter what. Obviously, if I'm going to do a, a Himalayan peak where I'm going to be gone for multiple weeks or months, then it, it changes. You know, you just kind of ramp it up. Denali, I've done three times. You definitely carrying a lot of weight up there, so you know I have to strengthen my core a little more than I might normally. Um, but it's, it's really that lifestyle. So that don't have, it's not so drastic that, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving in a month. I got to really, you know, figure this out because other things come into your life during that time and they'll throw you off balance. And then next thing you're not prepared. And the last thing you want to do is get into a situation where you've invested, you know, enough time and money and, you know, emotion, you know, leaving the family to, uh, to fail because of you. When you mm-hmm. have control over something, there's plenty of things out of your control on a mountain. You know, the weather, avalanches, you know, earthquakes and stuff that could happen, especially uh, in Everest the last couple of years. But the things that are within your control, I mean, it's just shame on you if, you know, if you go there and you fail or you put yourself or someone else at risk because of something you could have controlled. Right. So, so to me, that's, that's, that's huge. You, you got to prepare. And if I have a team going, I'm making sure they are prepared. I'm getting them out. I'm assessing them prior to the climbs way early. So I can say, you need to ramp it up or else, guess what? You're not going. Right. And then as far as willpower, 
I think the military definitely helps, you know, um, define, uh, I created, uh, I guess in the military in certain jobs, especially mine as a, an air rescue swimmer, they try to drown you every day. And it really <laughs> comes down to not panicking and just, you know, creating a new baseline of, you know, grit and willpower and what you thought possible. You know, I think most people, uh, I don't want to generalize, but I will, most people, these days, they, they just don't know. They, they right. think this is where they're at, but they can go so much further than that and survive and be happy and reflect on it and be like, wow, I really surprised myself there. Maybe I could do more in this world. But it's, mm-hmm. it's really easy to just take the easy route out. So I think, yeah, preparation, willpower, just kind of knowing where you're at. But on the flip side of that, not taking it to such an extent to where you're over calculating risks and or under calculating risks and pushing way beyond, you know, you, you may know where your baseline is and you know you've got beyond it before, but not putting yourself in certain circumstances that could really um, turn out horribly, you know. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. I think that whether it's it's something that's just been instilled in us or that we're born with it or or whatever there's there's definitely um limited beliefs uh, limiting beliefs rather that that we don't we're not even conscious of especially when it comes to putting our bodies through extreme activities man I mean the, CrossFit is is not like climbing Mount Everest but uh, some of those I do CrossFit and some of the workouts are like super intense Mm -hmm. and I, you know, challenge my thinking, like, am I going to be able to finish this thing? Cause uh, we just did the CrossFit open was uh, just concluded last week. And and the last workout was a doozy. And I, I really wasn't sure that I was going to be able to actually finish that workout. But I think that doing things like that and testing yourself and certainly getting drowned every day by the military will help build your willpower. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's let's talk about the blind descent. Okay. You you're you're not alone just anywhere. You're on the, the summit of Mount Everest, the highest peak in the world. You're in the death zone. Take us back to to that day first. Like what was where were you, where was your mindset at and and the crew that you were climbing with and then and then take us to, with you to the top and, and, and then on the way down when you started to realize you were going blind and how did you just not give in to all of those conditions around you that were you know, telling you uh, physically, whether they had actually entered your mind, but physically the, all of those conditions are saying this is going to be impossible. <laughs> take us back there. Tell us the story. Okay. So on, after spending over a month on the mountain, back in uh, 2011, to acclimate. So Everest stands at 29,035 feet, only a third of the air, 
sort of the ozone up there. So you just you can't survive without acclimating. If you were to pluck your body from sea level, Santa Cruz, you would pass out and die on the summit. So you spend a lot of time acclimating. What that means is you climb high and then you go back down and sleep low on the mountain and then you climb a little bit higher. And what that does is it it produces red blood cells, additional red blood cells, which carry oxygen in your body. So it's pretty uh, amazing to to just see that process work. And then eventually you can get up to Camp 3, which is halfway up Lhotse Face. Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world, where you just kind of anchor off these tents, um, cut shelves into um, this area on the side of an ice wall. And from there... You uh, that's at twenty sounds comfortable, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's at twenty three thousand feet. So from there, you, you typically will use supplemental oxygen. So carrying a fifteen pound oxygen bottle, which just mixes with the outside air. It's not a, like scuba diving because if you came off of one hundred percent compressed air, you would again just die. So heading up from there, after like I said, being a, a month on the mountain and acclimating, it was May fourteenth. And it was just myself and Pasong, my uh, um, Sherpa, climbing Sherpa, good guy, young guy, at uh, three other summits prior. We're heading up, and there's 70-mile-an-hour winds just going straight up this ice wall. A couple people summited that day, but one guy died, Japanese climber died up there. And then everyone else was um, apparently a day behind us. So on Everest, there's only a few days you can summit per year just because it's so high up there. It creates its own weather patterns. And mm-hmm. there's just you can only summit a couple days out of the year. So our goal was to get up there and summit on the morning of May 15th. So we're heading up and about 1,000 feet up. I, uh, I stopped to grab water, anchored off, and my, my foot slipped out. And then I dropped my goggles. And they they flew down the mountain and some Sherpa about 500 feet below waved at me and they said they had stopped them. Otherwise, they would have went down for over a mile. So I rappelled down, got to them, but they were cracked on the internal layer, so on the lens. So um, goggles fog up anyways with the contrast of your cold breath and hot air or vice versa. Right. Hot breath, cold hair. Yeah. And... Uh, um, mine were actually fogging between layers, so could barely see. Um, continued up, you know, tried sunglasses and everything, but it just doesn't work when you have a strap going across your face with the oxygen mask. So made it up to the highest camp in the world at the South Pole at twenty six thousand feet, and kind of readjusted my goggles. Ended up ripping the internal lens out, and I'm not really realizing that was going to cut their effectiveness in half. So Pasong and I were in our tent. Just a lot of wind. Um, we called down to triangulate weather. And they they called back to Seattle and Sweden. And they said it was going to clear up, and like fifty mile an hour gusts would come later the following day. So on highly glaciated peaks, you climb through the night because once the sun comes out, things become very unstable. And you know we put our headlamps on and we cruised out about eight p.m. and started heading up the mountain. And I got up to about the halfway point at 27,500 feet and waited there for about an hour as Pasong made his way up. And as soon as he got there, he told me he ran out of water. Uh, I gave him some of mine. He threw up right away, told me he wasn't feeling great. So mm. so we had to have a conversation. I want to make sure he was okay. He said he was. So we continued. And we got to about 28,000 feet and he told me he was done. 
And so at that point, I had to make a huge decision because we're the only two people going for the summit from the south or the north side, which is very unusual. So I had to weigh out the things that I knew at the time. You know, how was I feeling? How was the weather? But most importantly, how was Passong? He assured me he was good, said he was going to wait right there, right back at the balcony area, not too far from where we're at. And he stashed a bottle of oxygen and he, he cruised down. And I'd find out later he actually went all the way down to the high camp, which was fine because if he wasn't feeling well, it is the death zone. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I headed up and um, the, the picture you're talking about occurred as the sun was rising behind the highest peak in the world, casting that perfect pyramid shadow down over the Himalayas. I was anchored off uh, just above the, the South Rock Step, which is a rock climb at 28,000 feet. So a lot of effort. Wow. Yeah. Made it up and over that, made over the South Summit, got over Hillary Step, which is a 40-foot rock climb. And from there, you can actually see the summit. And there's a, uh, it's about a two-foot wide area to walk on. On each side of it is a two-mile drop straight down. So high up oh there. My, two miles. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Two miles straight on the right into Tibet, on the left into Nepal. <laughs> so just continued moving. And yeah, just a very, just a... It's just a, a lot to imagine at that moment, just uh, getting there and just, you know, just processing everything and just emotional, made a radio call down, let them know that I was alone and heading back down and, you know, took the highest selfie in the world and, you know, made sure capture all the pictures and started heading down and about 10 yards into it, everything just went completely white and I went snow blind. And at that moment, I just, I dropped down and on Everest, there's fixed lines, which are ropes, you know, the Sherpa and guides will attach ropes to anchors from base camp to the summit. So that's why I can be there up by myself. I have a harness and all my gear on, which is attached to that rope. So it's right. my lifeline. So I grabbed that rope and just assess the situation. You know, I was at the highest point in the world, completely alone and blind. Had you come across that two-foot little bridge area yet? No. Oh, my god! No, this is right near the summit. And I just remember uh, not overthinking the situation and just moving, just very slowly, just moving, very deliberate steps. I was using my other senses. And honestly, I'm not normally blind. I was really trying to use my eyes. But it's just it's so painful with snow blindness. It's like if you put a light bulb within an inch of your face, you just it's bright and you cannot see anything. Even if you put your, your hand in front of your face, you'll know something just moved, but there's no way you can actually see it. Oh my gosh. And it just it feels like I always compare it to breaking chips, potato chips, inside of your eyelids. Just that oh, scraping, just really oh. painful, bright, really just hurts. And uh, just start moving and just very slowly piercing my crampons into the, the snow and ice, feeling the wind coming up and over and just hunkering down to kind of lower my center of mass so I didn't get blown off. And this whole time, I just, I felt this presence around me. I just, I never felt alone. Be like, if you're in the room with someone else, you close your eyes, you know, they're there. Even if they're not talking, I just, I felt that this whole time going mm -hmm. down. So it's just peaceful presence and it's powerful. Just kept moving. Um, reached that that point, that two mile drop, and you know I, I knew where I was at. So just very, as the wind was coming, just very very careful. 
And um, some of the areas are very steep coming down Hillary's step. You know, I pendulum down, kind of slammed into the rock and made my way down. And uh, I definitely didn't want to get on the wrong side of the anchor points where my body weight was pulling down. So I had to really use my, my hands to feel. And then the clicking sound, I'm sure I was clipping my carabiners in and locking them appropriately. And then once I got above the, or got right below the south summit, um, I just felt this pop and my, I lost one of my crampons. It just came loose and just flew off and I couldn't get down without that. So I just started heading down the side of the mountain that I didn't come up. I came up the rock area. And as soon as my non-crampon foot hit the snow, I just slipped out and I was just falling uncontrollably. And the rope shock loaded, saved my life. I would have went for over a mile. And mm. I'm upside down. My mask is ripped from my face. My bottle of oxygen's coming out. And I pull it back. My heart's just ripping out of my chest. And I just just uh, calm myself. And one thing in the military, they always taught us the biggest thing is just never panic. Panic kills. And just really, really came back to that. And uh, um, where I landed, you know, not too far above me, I saw this blurry object, like this yellow and black blurry object. I crawled up to it and it was my crampon. So just a a miracle. And I just cut out a little shelf, stomped it in there and put it on, tightened both of them and started heading to my left, facing the mountain to the left, to the rock area. And then the, the earth just fell out beneath me, a slab avalanche. And immediately I grabbed the rope and oh it burned God. a line right through my glove. And I just remember that pain, but I grabbed so hard, so fast that I stopped myself. And again, my heart's just racing. I just calmed myself down and made it over to the rock area, kind of slid down that. You know, definitely nothing graceful going on. And uh, got to uh, the snow area right where Pasong had turned around. And at this point, it had been over 30 hours from the day prior to this point. So just physically exhausted, climbing in, you know, the harshest areas you can climb, no vision, just frustrated and just kept moving and almost passed right by that extra oxygen bottle. And it was just this bright orange thing stuck in the snow. And I like kind of laid down next to it and fumbled my regulator off, tried to get it working, but for whatever reason, it just, it wouldn't work. So I didn't troubleshoot too long. You know, I put the other bottle back in my pack and reattached my other one, which was going to run out soon. I was pretty sure, just based on how long I'd been climbing and breathing. And I uh, made it down to the balcony area, no pasong, and that was okay. And then I just decided to take the the last twenty pitch rappel, just reverse my gear and start rappelling down to get to base camp or to high camp. And about you know maybe fifteen twenty yards into it, my mask just starts sucking into my face. And I, I remember ripping it off and I'd run out of oxygen. And at that moment, I was, I was just done. I just, I dropped to my knees and just prayed and just said, God, I cannot do this alone. You know, please help. And I had a, a lot of people reach out to me, you know, weeks later after I'd gotten back just saying at that moment, you know, the, the moment actually correlated that they just felt the need. They woke up middle of the night to just pray and you know, lift me up. And at that moment on the side of the mountain, as soon as I, I said that prayer, I just felt this energy. It was like someone just reached down and lifted me up. And I just wow. had this life re-enter 
enter my body. And I just, without thinking too much, I just grabbed that other oxygen bottle and tried it and I got a positive flow. Mm. And I just remember that air re-entering my body, just, it burned like, like I've never experienced just down to my veins, to my fingertips and toes. It was just this warmth. It just, it's like fire. And I didn't think too much about it, the pain or anything else, just got all my gear together and just started going as fast as I could, which is still really slow, but just didn't want to trip over myself, but just making sure I was coming in and out of the anchors and got down to that last quarter mile, this big ice bulge that leads into um, the high camp there. And, um, you know, at that point I was just like staggering and out of nowhere, Pasong just hugs me. Oh my gosh. It's like, Brian, you alive. (laughs) And so it should have taken me about two to three hours to get from the summit down to this point took seven. So just to give some perspective. That's that's amazing. Did they... Like so, when you started to make that journey back down, and you, and then you know, ten yards into it, you realized you were you were blind. Did, were you able to like radio in to to alert them that this had happened, or no, or no? Wow. No, and there's a there's a few few things there. So I actually had twisted the um, dial, so it was a mm-hmm. digital dial. Okay. So I, I couldn't get it back if I tried. Oh, at wow. the same time, uh, most people don't know, like on Everest, there there really are no rescues. Mm. And for me, I don't think I would have put anyone else at risk to come right. to me when the only person that could have already went down because he was sick. Yeah. I just like couldn't live with myself. So, and there's a lot of bad choice of words, but dead zones on, right. on the summit down where you, there's no signal anyways. Wow. So, and yeah, I know, I know that there are a lot of people that are permanent residents of, yeah, of Everest. Yeah, 200. Yeah, it's, that's amazing. One of the things that, that, I'm, that you've said, and, and I think that this, this, this is really important because in life, you know, we, we all face obstacles and, and adversity, and, and it, it certainly, more often than not, isn't as life-threatening as descending Mount Everest blind. But one of the things that you said, which is that, so you, 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 you were blind and all of these things are happening, but you tried not to overthink it and just kept moving slowly and, and your training kicked in because you were taught that panic kills. And so like, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, it doesn't even sound like he's entered survival mode. I mean, like, and, and the reason is probably because of all the preparation that you did leading up to it, studying the the past that you were going to take, you know, all the training. But I mean, it's it's just is that, is that kind of like one of the keys to to success in the talks that that you're giving? You know, wh- whether it's to other entrepreneurs or to an organization as a motivational speaker, are, are you talking at all about you know panic and 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 not overthinking adversity and just continuing to keep moving forward? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a there's a couple ends of the spectrum you can take, you know, with my experience, obviously, hopefully, you know, no, no one will ever have to experience what I went through. You know, I was, it took me a month and a half to regain my sight. You know, I still had to get down from the death zone, which took two more days. And, you know, just the PTSD that, that occurred afterward, once I was able to sure, process yeah. what, what had happened, even, even now, you know, talking, I, I get emotional over it. Um, but there's, there's the preparation 
and you can you can only prepare for so many things. And in business, it, it's the same. You, you get educated, you get your experience, you prepare, and then a merger and acquisition occurs, or layoffs, or or new management. They want to change the direction of a of the business. And I, I think a lot of times we can panic, and you'll see people just leave in those moments, and you know try to find something better, and then they end up coming back or, you know, just unhappy in general. But uh, I, I think there's, um, you know, perseverance comes in a, a lot of different flavors. Um, for me, getting down the mountain really just came down to faith and focus, you know, mm-hmm. never ever giving up faith, you know, trying with myself and, you know, when that wasn't working, you know, going directly to the the main source of faith and then focus, just breaking it down into small blocks dying was never an option for me. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen, but I wasn't going to allow it. And it would have been very peaceful. I can tell you being there, hiking at that altitude and in those conditions for over 30 hours, I think it was 33 hours, I could have easily closed my eyes and just peacefully went away, became a permanent fixture on Everest. Mm -hmm. But I, I had my family, and just I had my motivation to continue surviving. It was if I didn't allow that to to cloud what I was trying to do, and just keeping that focus and breaking it into small, you know, little successes. I knew I had a map in my mind where I was going. Get get down, you know, past Hillary Step and get down the South Summit and to, you know where Pasong was supposed to be, and then down to you know just. You break it down in these little successes, and I was celebrating those. And trust me, that I was in survival mode. You know, I retell the story, you know, quickly for a podcast. But seven hours to go through that, there was <coughs> lots of frustration and lots of calming myself down. Plenty of choice words, plenty of you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of lot of feelings and things that could have been very damaging. In survival in the military, I've been through you know, land, water, survival, uh, POW camp training called SEER school where, you know, you're, you're put in a box and beaten and, and sort of waterboarding, all that occurs. So I've, I've been through some serious, some of the most serious survival schools that the military has. And a lot of it comes down to, to mental focus. You have to have that mental strength to get through anything because once you lose that, you're done. Yeah. Wow. That, that, what an incredible story and inspirational beyond measure. I'm sure that you've been approached by Hollywood to take your book and put it into a screenplay. I mean, you are reenact, you're doing a reenactment, but I don't think it's for a motion picture, right? Uh, yeah, it's more of a movie series. And yeah, my, okay. my agents are definitely working on something bigger. That's, that's great. You know, I think that your book, you know, God always puts us in, in, uh, in situations for a reason, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, Usually it's not, you know, at the top of Mount Everest, <laughs> but, uh, but it's always so that we can, you know, share something of value with other people and, and maybe save someone's life, career, marriage, whatever it might be through your story. So thank you very much for, for sharing your story about the blind descent. And, uh, before we get to how our subscribers can connect with you and, and get your book and, and interact with you. I, I ask a, another kind of close closing question, which is based on the the title of a book 
um, called How Will You Measure Your Life? To frame this for you, this was written by a guy who uh, is a Harvard business professor. He's also a Harvard alum. And he was talking about in the book how he they went back to their reunion and you know, initially five years after they graduated, everybody was super excited and, you know, idealistic and people were starting to get married and get land these great jobs. And then 10 years later, you know, people were amassing great deals of wealth and some people were now divorced. And then 15 years later, some people were even wealthier. Other people had committed fraud and were now in prison and some people have gone bankrupt and, and it made him start questioning all of these things that were taught are important in life um, and, and measurements of success, quote unquote. So, so with that in mind and all the achievements and everything that, that you've gathered thus far, how will you, Brian Dickinson, measure your life? Hmm. I think that's a, a great question that everyone should answer. I mean, that's, I think it puts it in perspective for me. And I think it, it has definitely changed over, over the years. Cause when you're young, it's all about, you right it's all about me right and in today's society i mean just ever this the kids are just so entitled and it's it's very very sad social media is definitely plays into that and i just i hope we can correct that at some point but man we're heading down the wrong path and for me there's definitely been a time in my life when it was all about me and all these things. And it wasn't until maybe this, maybe having kids, I don't know, but at some point it, it definitely changed. And it's the impact that I have on others, you know, starting with my own family. I think a, a good measurement of your life a lot of times can be what type of legacy do you leave with your, your kids? You know, cause that's immediately not always within your control, but definitely within your influence. Um, but because I've been given this platform, you know, based on, you know, the challenge that, that God definitely lifted me up from. And just at a macro level, just uh, I think I measure my life based on, you know, how have I changed the world? And maybe that's in a single individual, you know, leading them to, you know, a better life or afterlife. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's great. How can our subscribers connect with you? Where can they get your book? Um, is there one kind of universal hub that they can go to and interact with you on all the social media channels as well? Uh, yeah, well, my website's briandickinson.net um, and everything's kind of hung off of that, but Blind Descent is pretty much anywhere you can buy books, Amazon, Barnes. I'm actually having an audio version being narrated in the next oh, cool. couple of months. Yeah. And then uh, all, yeah, all social media flavors. I have actual video from my climbs out on YouTube, so you can always subscribe there and see see what I'm posting there. And you know, I tend to hang out on Twitter more than anything. But you know, mm-hmm. whatever flavors are out there, whatever you like, I'm out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you and I connected was on was on Twitter. So uh, that, that's a very efficient means of communicating with you and getting and getting in touch. Any any final words of wisdom or things that our listeners should keep their eyes open for that you're doing? Uh, so like we said earlier, no shortage of adventures on in this world. Um, but I am I'm kind of on the mode of the having the the courage to be content and really just turning things uh, inwardly with my family and just having adventures that we can all do together but um what I find out, what I find is that my adventures tend to be a little elevated over what I consider the norm. So <laughs> when I say, "Oh, I'm going to do this," everyone's like, "Oh my goodness!" Like, "Oh, 
but it's, it doesn't compare to, you know, something else. So yeah, I, I like, I like where you went with, you know, measuring your life, you know, I would, mm-hmm. I, final words, I'm just going to take from you because, and where you got it, because I think it's important to figure out, you know, what, what's important to you and are you working towards that today? And if not, it's not going to happen on its own. So you, you have to make a change. I think writing it out when you can actually write out your goals and kind of see, are you aligning? Great. Continue what you're doing. If not, you know, figure it out, make it, make a plan for change. It doesn't have to be, you know, rip the bandaid off, do it tomorrow, but it helps, you know, because <laughs> you'll just continue doing things as you're doing them. They become habits and then you're going to potentially live a life of resentment. And that's the last thing. You got one shot at it. Just go after it. Own it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so much for sharing your inspirational story with us today with our listeners. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch with you and, and wish you nothing but the best. And we'll, we'll, we'll uh, keep our eyes open for the uh, Brian Dickinson story to hit the silver screen someday. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. We all face adversity, sometimes daily, in our entrepreneurial activities and even in life in general. As we hear a lot, more often than not, the difference between success and failure just comes down to not giving up. Of course, there is a ton of preparation and training and perfection of skill that goes into learning how to climb any mountain, let alone Mount Everest, or launching a company, or launching a podcast, whatever it may be, but there will always be setbacks. And the important thing to take away from our conversation with Brian today is to let your preparation, let your skill take control and not allow yourself to overthink adversity, but to just keep moving forward, even if it's slowly. Because as he shared when he was in the military, he learned that panic kills. And panic can kill in your business and in your career, in your relationships, etc. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode today. We will link to Brian's website and the book, as well as other books that we mentioned in the show notes. If you did like this episode, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell us how much you love our show, how much you love our guests. And of course, you can always go to our website at www.theimpactentrepreneur.net and subscribe there for the podcast, as well as to be alerted when we post a new blog, which we're putting out content on a regular basis. So thanks again for tuning in today. Now go make an impact.